So because you're his kids, follow your father's example and walk in the way of love. And what does that look like? What does it mean to walk in the way of love? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, as an act of worship to the Father, Jesus said, I will submit to you, Father, and I will give my life as a ransom for many. And in the same way that he lived sacrificially, we are called as sons and daughters of God to live sacrificially as well. He begins to explore, hey, don't live like the Gentiles, as the non-believers, as the rest of the world around you lives. Instead, live as children of the light. Live as children who are loved and then become a conduit of that love in every situation you find yourself in. And as we come to the passage that we are going to study today, beginning in verse 21, I want us to recognize at the outset That this is not a new section. He's not starting a new idea. Rather, he is following through with this thought of live out of who you are. And therefore, this is how you you should live as a child of God. So verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is how Jesus loved the church. And remember, the church isn't a building. The church is a people, a body. We are the church. Every man, woman, and child that has Jesus in our hearts is part of the church. And this is how he showed his love sacrificially for us. And in the same way, Husbands, love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, um, where did I? He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we're members of His body. And then He He gives a He refers to a passage from the Old Testament to kind of undergird this idea that in caring for our spouses, we are actually caring for ourselves. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So in caring for your wife, you're caring for yourself. Now, this is a profound mystery, but understand I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, when it comes to our relationships with our spouses, Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. I will admit to you that in our current cultural climate, Paul's words here can in some ways sound uncomfortable to a lot of us. Right? They're... In light of the Me Too movement, where, where kind of almost every week we hear of another person who has used their position of power to control and use another person, words like submission and headship 
are uncomfortable. And in many ways, we would probably prefer, some of us at least, would prefer to ignore that this passage is here at all. And just move on. Can we get to, can we get to the next part where we talk about spiritual warfare? Because that's way more fun. Um, but, but, I would propose to you that what Paul is prescribing here, the posture that Paul is calling each of us to live in submission to one another, is actually an antidote to the brokenness we see in our culture rather than him advocating the same kind of brokenness that we see playing out right now. And what I hope you will see as we proceed through this passage today is that the heart of what Paul is calling us to would absolutely radically change the face of of our culture and change the face of our relationships if we would simply take it to heart. But before we dive in and begin to uncover the heart of what Paul is talking about here, I want to take us back to the beginning, back to the inception of some of the messiness that we find in our culture currently. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. My guess is it's probably on page 1. In the book of Genesis, particularly in the first chapter, we get this beautiful picture of God as this creative artist speaking the world into existence. And through, through his words, he begins to create the heavens and the earth. And then he begins to bring order to the, the, the materials that he has spoken into existence. And towards the end of it, on the sixth day of creation, we read that God chooses to create a representative for himself that will join him in caring for and cultivating his creation. So let's look at verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that They may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This is called the creation mandate. We're going to lean heavily into that beginning in February. So we're not going to spend too much time on this right now. Let's keep going to the next verse. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. What I hope that you will see from this passage and what we just read is that in creating mankind as his image bears, he doesn't just make men and say, you represent me. He makes both men and women and that both genders represent aspects of the heart of our God that together we can more holistically represent our God's heart and who he is into creation. When we just take one gender and say, this is the image bearer, you actually do great damage to it because, ladies, you epitomize aspects of our Father God's character better than we do. And I'm speaking very generalistically there, okay? But I want us to recognize that both men and women are image bearers. Let's go to chapter 2. In chapter 2... The writer of Genesis takes, go, goes from this kind of broad overview and zeroes in on the creation narrative of, of the day six when he makes man in his image. And we're going to begin reading in verse 15. 
God takes man and put him in the Garden of Eden, this Garden of Delight, to work it and to care for it. To begin to join him in the care and cultivation of creation. And the Lord God commanded the man, hey, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you'll certainly die. All of this is for you. Just do not take from that tree and eat from it. It's very interesting that he chose to put the tree there at all. I would argue that he chose to do that because he was giving us free will so that we can have the choice whether or not to obey, whether or not to trust. And it is free will that enables us to have a genuine relationship with God as opposed to simply operating out of our programming as if we were just robots doing what he has programmed us to do. But that's another conversation for another day. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good For the man to be alone. This is the first time in the entire creation narrative that God recognizes something that is lacking in his creation. And he goes on, I will make a helper suitable for the man. Now that term helper is often viewed as almost derogatory, as a a secondary role. The term in, in Hebrew is izer. But here's what I hope that you will see. And I know we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I just want to point this out. That the person in Scripture that is referred to as our Ezer, as our helper more than anybody else in all of Scripture, is God himself. God is our helper. Our ever-present Ezer in times of trouble. That is who God is, and that is in no way a declaration that God is secondary to us. So we would do damage to what what the writer of Genesis is saying when he says that God is looking to create a suitable helper for the man. Because all of the animals were not. They did not match him. They did not suit him. They were not a partner for him. And so he creates Eve as a counterpart, a partner to him in joining him in the mandate to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, And subdue it, care for it, bring culture out of the raw materials of creation. The man and the woman were intended to work together to fulfill that. And only together could they actually do that. But we all know how this played out, right? The serpent comes sliding in from the side and goes, Hey, did God really say not to to touch that fruit? Man, he's holding out on you. Don't you realize that? He's not trustworthy. He just doesn't want you to be like him. And when Adam and Eve look at the fruit and they go, you know what? Maybe God really is holding out on us. And maybe that can give us what we're lacking because maybe God did really make us deficient. Suddenly the fruit becomes a whole lot more attractive to them. And Eve reaches up and she plucks the fruit. She takes a bite and then she hands him to Adam who is standing right there with her and he takes a bite. And suddenly their eyes are open and they both recognize what's happened. Because suddenly their whole perspective of themselves has changed. Sin and shame enters into God's good creation and corrupts it completely. Not only is their perception of themselves altered, but their perception of one another is altered. And their perception of God is altered. They they, they cover themselves up out of embarrassment for 
their naked vulnerability, although they had been naked the whole time and never seemed to care. And they hide from their creator. They hide from the very one who has made them to join him in the care and cultivation of creation. And so God, in chapter 3, begins to lay down, he begins to articulate some consequences of the fall. We call them curses, and more often than not, when we think about the curses, we think of them from a strictly punitive standpoint. God is angry at them for disobeying, so now he's going to spank them and all of their progeny from that day forward because of their disobedience. So he curses the serpent. You will forever live in enmity or or discord between the the humanity and yourself. And then he, he begins to speak some words that are not so happy for the man and the woman. To the woman, he curses her, her act of childbearing. And, and, and he, he says there will be a friction between you and your husband. And to the man, he says, the, the work that you do will now be laborious and painful. Here's something I'd like you to, to notice. And we'll spend more time again in February exploring this. Every single thing that he speaks to as being cursed with the man and the woman are tied directly to the mandate that he has given them both. Be fruitful and multiply. Now there's pain in childbearing and childrearing. Your relationship with one another will now have friction. He created them to be naked and unashamed with one another as partners. Now there's friction. The work of your hands will now be laborious. He created mankind to join him in working and caring for and bringing order to the chaos. Do you see that he frustrates the very things that we have a tendency to look to for our identity and our purpose and our fulfillment? These things will no longer fulfill us. But why did he do it? I would suggest to you the reason that God frustrated those things was not simply to punish mankind. In fact, I think that they were far more loving and caring. Because here's the thing that God recognizes. Mankind, particularly with the entrance of sin into the world, is bent away from God. And we will search and look for, look to other things to fulfill us and define us. And so in cursing these things, God cuts a a God-shaped hole out of every single one of our hearts and says these things will no longer satisfy. They can no longer fulfill you. You will only be able to find fulfillment in me. So stop running and just come back to me because I love you. Now taken from that perspective, do you see that these are far from being curses? They're actually in some ways blessings that are also uncomfortable and that we are to this day continuing to experience and live out of. And I look forward to the day when God remakes everything and we no longer have the effects of the curses. But today, for our purposes, I want to focus on just one of those curses. And it's the one that speaks to the relationship between the man and the woman. In verse 16, the second half of it, God speaking to Eve says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, on its surface, 
we would tend to read this as, well, you will long for a partner, but he will domineer over you. And perhaps that's an appropriate way of reading it. But I would, I would point out to you that the very next time that word desire is used is in chapter 4, the next chapter in Genesis. It, it, he speaks it when he's talking to a guy named Cain, who's the son of Adam and Eve. And Cain is jealous of his brother because God appreciated Cain or Abel's offering more than Cain's. And Cain is beginning to feel so angry and jealous of his brother that murder begins to take root in his heart. And God says, Cain, beware. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires, same word, to have you. And you must rule over it. Same word used for the man. Its desire is to control you and shape your choices and you must rule over it. Keep it bottled up and not allow it to get out. So when we back up and look at the curse that God has just spoken over Adam and Eve, your desire will be for your husband. I would suggest the more appropriate way to read this is that you will seek to control your husband through any means necessary to, to get him to be the partner that you long for. And he, for his part, will take the position, the posture of a king over a subject and rule over you. Sounds like fun, huh? Right? I'm so thankful that this same dynamic doesn't play out in our marriages today. Or maybe it does for a few of us. Um, the interesting thing as you look through history is that throughout the millennia, culture after culture after culture embraced this curse and in fact in many times, in many ways, made it law. <clears throat> we also see that in the culture of the Greco-Roman culture into which Paul is writing the letter to the Ephesians. Within the Greco-Roman culture, the man was by law the king of his household. King over his wife, king over his children, king over his servants. He could choose to do whatever he wanted with, to them with impunity. In many ways, the only thing that he was expected to give his wife was a roof over her head and children. That's it. Not a listening ear not romance, not date nights, none of that. And it's into that cultural milieu that let's go ahead and turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. Because it's into that brokenness where the curse of Genesis 3 has been made law and is being lived out every day in so many different ways <clears throat> that Paul reminds the sons and daughters of God who have been saved and loved by a gracious God. Don't live like them any longer. Don't give in to that. Instead, live as children of the light. Whose very lives expose the futility of following that way of living. Don't give in to the animosity and the competition that can rise, raise its ugly head within a marriage. Instead... 
live loving in the same way that you have been loved. And I'll remind us that this is precipitated off of this idea that we are to follow our Father's example in loving one another. And that Jesus modeled this for us. And so he says in verse 21, because we are children of God, submit your, your, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let's stop for a moment because that word submit is an uncomfortable one. When we think of the word submit in our culture, typically here's what it, it boils down to. It is about power. It is about control. And typically the person who is submitted to is the stronger person who forces the person under them to submit. Oftentimes, the person who is expected to submit is the less important person. And they are called to, expected to, demanded to submit to somebody who is more important to them. So let me pause for a moment and simply remind us what Paul has already said is true about us. We are sons and daughters of God. That's our identity. That is our starting position. It is a position of absolute equality when it comes to value. There is no difference. And it's a position of strength. It's a position of dignity. It's a position of... I can't even over-express the importance of being a son and a daughter of God. And it is from that position that he calls us to submit. And in light of that, I want you to hear that the word submit does not mean place yourself underneath the domineering hand of another person who's more important than you or is stronger than you. Taken that way, we begin to understand that to submit means to place your own interest, to place another person's interests ahead of your own. And it is a choice. It is a willful decision to place your interests behind another's. Let me give you some examples. You're driving down the street. You hear a siren. Now you have places to go. You've got things to do. You don't want to slow down because you want to make it through that light before it turns red. And yet, what do you do when you hear that siren? You hopefully, hopefully, especially if you have the fish sticker on the back of your car, you pull over to the side and you let that ambulance or that fire engine or that cop, you definitely pull over when there's a cop, that, that, that service person go by. You submit your need to get somewhere to the interests of another person, even though you don't know them. That was what submission looks like. But, but, but that's a hypothetical. Let's, let's, let's take one that's a little closer to home. Let's just imagine, hypothetically speaking, that you are driving out to Riverside during Thanksgiving. <laughs> and let's just imagine, hypothetically, that you think you're Mario Andretti, who can weave through traffic to get there quickly and safely. Because in your mind, you are driving very safe and very... Um, sufficiently right but let's just say for a moment hypothetically that your sweetie is getting a little uncomfortable in the passenger seat and she continues to push the passenger brake and try to pull the e-cord right like can we slow down and, and every moment she does it every little jerk of her makes 
your heart a little more frustrated because, hypothetically speaking, it makes you feel like she doesn't trust you. I know this is never the case for any of you or for me for that matter. Let's just say for a moment that she speaks these words into the light. Can you please just pick a lane? And you think to yourself, lady, I am a safe driver, even though you don't understand that. And I am driving pretty much legally. I'm using my blinker most of the time. And yet, what does it mean to submit yourself? It means... Choosing to place her desire to live (laughs) ahead of your desire to get there 30 seconds sooner, right? Hypothetically speaking. And that's what it means to submit, is to place another's interests ahead of your own, to choose to do so. But why do we do it? Oftentimes in our culture, we do it because supposedly the person is more important, more powerful, has a higher position. And yet, what reason does Paul give us for submitting to one another? Submit yourself to one another. For what reason? This is the interactive portion of the sermon. (laughs) Why do we submit ourselves to one another? Out of reverence for Christ. In the Old Testament, they would have used the word fear. Remember the whole fear of God is the beginning of wisdom? What that means is not you have to be scared of God. It is a reverential respect for one who is more powerful than you. The one who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. He is God and we are not. Therefore, out of reverence to him, out of respect. For Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, that is why we submit ourselves to one another. Also notice, who is he speaking to right here? Is he speaking just to women? The answer is that is no. He is speaking to all of us. Doesn't matter if you're married. Doesn't matter if you're single. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. He is speaking to every single one of us who calls Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, to submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence to Christ. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our big brother, and he has modeled for us how we should approach one another. Can we throw the the passage from Mark up on the board for a moment? This is from Mark 10. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. When they were bickering about who was the most important of Jesus' disciples. Hey, which one of us is going to be sitting closest to him in the position of honor and authority? And Jesus says this. Jesus called his disciples together and said, You know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Don't. Take the same posture that they take. Let's keep going. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then he points to himself. And he says, for even the son of man, which is a term he uses to refer to himself in the third person, for even the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So don't be like those who use their position of responsibility and authority to lord it over people and demand that they submit. Instead, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then serve. Take the posture of a self-sacrificial servant. Let's go to the book of Philippians for a moment. Paul, in working out this same kind of dynamic of sacrificial leadership, says, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, let me pause for a moment. He is not saying they are more valuable, but in humility, consider them as more important. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Care for their needs ahead of your own. Let's keep going. In your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, do you get any more important than being God in human flesh? Anyone? I agree. No, you don't. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't say, hey, I'm God in a bod. Submit, girl. Submit, boy. No. Instead, what did he do? Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, taking on human flesh, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, which in that day was not only the most painful, but was the most humiliating way to die. He chose to place our interests. He chose to place the Father's interests ahead of his own. Did he want to die? Absolutely not. Did he choose to die? You better believe it. I think the most beautiful picture of sacrificial leadership is on the night that Jesus was ultimately arrested as he's sitting having dinner with his disciples. He takes off his outer clothing, and he, he puts a towel around his waist, and he gets down on his hands and his knees, and he begins to wash the dirty, disgusting feet of his disciples, which they're like, this is weird, right? And he says, in the same way that I have served you, serve one another. And then the next day, the next day, he washed their souls with his blood. That is how Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, modeled Servant leadership. That is how he submitted himself to us for our good. And Paul says in the same way that he has done that, submit to one another out of reverential respect for your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make sense so far? He then turns his attention to the ladies in his audience. And he says, wives... Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, let me pause here for a moment because this is a really important point that we often skip over. Paul is not saying, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands who are your lords. You only have one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. But as an act of worship to your Lord... Submit yourselves 
to your husbands. Place their interests ahead of your own. Love them as Christ loved. Love them by being that partner that you were created to be, that, that helper that helps him in caring for and cultivating creation. That is how you love and serve and submit to your husband. Jesus Christ is our Lord. Jesus Christ is your Lord. Now what this also means is that there's a limit to the submission because if your husband is demanding that you disobey a direct directive from God, let's lie, cheat, or steal. We're doing this. You, you just need to keep your mouth shut. Do not, do not let anybody know what we're doing, even though it is in blatant disobedience to God. Or, if he uses his position of authority abusively, and you are afraid for your own well-being, the well-being of your children, at that point, and I want to be very careful how I word this, at that point, you have a responsibility to prayerfully seek your Lord's direction and how to proceed. But you are not called to simply roll over and take it. Far too many times this passage has been used in that way and it is straight up abusive and I am sorry for the ways that it has been abused because it is not the heart of what Paul is saying here. Eric, wait a minute. You're missing the point. In the very next verse, Paul goes on to say, for the... For, what does he say? Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. The husband is the head of the wife. Doesn't that mean, by definition, that the husband is, in fact, the Lord of his wife? That's certainly how this passage has been read and interpreted and used throughout history. It's been used by men who say it's almost like a trump card in an argument. Every time it doesn't seem like the argument's going your way. I am your head, so submit to me. And it does great damage to the heart of what Paul is saying. I am the head of this household, so you must submit, which in, in, in other words means I get my way. Now, let me ask you, do you think that's the heartbeat of what Paul is saying here? Is that what he's driving at? No, you know what? Don't answer that question. Let me ask it, diff- let me ask it a slightly different way. Is that kind of domineering rulership, headship, the same kind of headship that Jesus Christ modeled for the church? Ab-so-freaking-lutely not. I apologize for saying freaking. I should have said the harder word, but I'm not going to. Absolutely not. That kind of attitude that says, I'm the head, therefore I get my way, so submit. That sounds a whole heck of a lot more like the curse, doesn't it? And he will rule over her. Instead, how did Christ love the church. How did he lead as the head of the church? He served her. He covered her. He washed her. 
He sacrificed himself. He submitted his interest to the interests of the church, his bride. Did he want to die on the cross? No. Do you remember that conversation he has with God? Father, if there's any way we can do this, it doesn't require me to bleed out on a cross. Let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done, right? He submitted himself. He washed his bride, the church, with his blood to cleanse us, to make us righteous. Not because we were righteous in and of ourselves. Not because we deserved it, but because he loved us and he placed our interests ahead of his own. That is how he led. And Paul says, in the same way, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Let's keep going. This is verse 25. Because... We tend to focus in this passage on the first four verses, particularly those three verses that talk about a wife's responsibility to submit to her husband. We tend to spend the most of our time when this passage is talked about focusing on that. But two-thirds of Paul's words focus on the guys. And remember, in a culture where men are the kings of their homes, would it have been audacious for Paul to say, wives, submit to your husbands? Would this have been Revolutionary? What is revolutionary, what is audacious, is that he would then turn around and say in the same breath, and men, love your wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificially, selflessly. How did he love the church? He gave himself up for her, dying on a cross to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, not because we, the church, were holy and blameless, but because of his sacrifice, because of his covering, because of the responsibility that he took to care for and love and die for us. And in the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. I mean, he who loves his wife loves himself. This is not a solely selfless act. Guys, in caring for, in in cherishing, in listening to, in pursuing your wife, in dying to yourself for her... You're actually loving yourself because quite honestly, I mean, as the world says, happy wife, happy life. But as you serve her, as you place her interests in the interests of your families above and ahead of your own. I want to use the word ahead of instead of above because that word submit so often has this kind of hierarchical. And I want us to just understand this is a, an act of putting someone else's needs ahead of your own, considering them as more important than you are, not because they are in Christ, you are an equal value, but because you were so loved, because you have been so loved by our God, reflect that into the most intimate of relationships that you have. So no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we're members of his body. 
And for this reason, a, a man will leave his father and his mother, be united to his wife, and you'll become one flesh. There, there will be no beginning and end to one another. You, the, the things that happen to her affect you. The things that happen to you affect her. You're not in competition with one another. So stop competing. Stop feeling jealous every time he succeeds and you don't. Stop feeling, you know, stop feeling jealous when she succeeds or she gets to rest and watch television or something and you have to go to work. Stop being jealous when she gets a raise and you don't. Stop competing. Because you're really just competing with yourself. And if you want to compete at something, then compete at loving one another. Compete at outserving one another because then you both win. Right? So stop competing. Stop being jealous. Stop backbiting. Stop tearing one another down. And instead, build one another up. Where the heck am I? Mm. He says in verse 32, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church in many ways. Our relationship as husband and wife is a tangible representation, or hopefully will be, of the relationship we have with our loving, sacrificial Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, and he comes back, he now brings it back from this, back to this relationship. And he says, however, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. That's not saying two different things. Generally speaking, women long to be loved and cherished. Men long to be respected. And they are two sides of the same coin. Respect, for many men, and this is generally speaking, respect is an act of love. And so, ladies, when you tear your husbands down, when you remind him of how far he is falling short of what you expect, you call that loving me like Christ loved the church? <laughs> you call yourself a Christian, right? When you tear your husband down or constantly point out his imperfections, you are not respecting your husband and you are not practicing the posture that Paul is calling. And husbands, when you constantly point out your wife's flaws, when you remind her of the ways she doesn't match you or match your expectations, when you tear her down, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting your relationship and you're hurting the witness that your lives could have because if we could simply live out of this posture of serving one another and placing one another's needs and interests ahead of our own. Do you think that words like submission and headship would be curse words in our church, let alone in our culture? I don't. If we knew how to live out of the posture that Paul is calling us to have towards one another, that says, I am going to choose to put you ahead of myself, not because I think I'm less than you, 
but because I know how utterly valued I am as a child of God. So therefore, I will choose to place your interests and my, your needs ahead of my own. And then it's reciprocated as he or she does the same thing. That is how it should work. Unfortunately, that's not the case in far too many relationships. And because of that, passage like this is viewed with fear. And people are concerned, what are we going to say? How are we going to spin this? What damage will be done to the church when we actually call this theological black eye out into the open? Because in this culture, there's far too many reminders of power and position that are used to domineer. And I'll admit, within the church, we don't have a very good track record with utilizing this passage. Unfortunately, we have completely missed the heart of what Paul is saying. What Paul is inviting us into is an opportunity to live out of who we already are. I am a child of God. I am loved more than anything in this world. Therefore now, love another sacrificially. Submit yourself to one another out of reverence to Christ. It's an invitation. And if you disagree with me, notice this. When he's talking about women, who is he talking to? Women. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as unto the Lord. And when he's talking about men, who does he talk to? Men. Husbands, in the same way, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, that is the invitation to come from a position of strength and place another ahead of yourself. Unfortunately, what has happened far too often is this beautiful invitation to live counterculturally has been instead weaponized as a cudgel that we use to beat somebody into submission. You will submit to me because I am the head. And I apologize for this energy in my voice, but that is far too often how it is articulated. Can you understand why there are women in this church who are terrified of this passage? Because for far too long, we have said that is the heart of our God. And I'm telling you it is not. We are called to submit our own interests to the interests of another in love. To build one another up. To care for one another's needs. To lay our own wants and desires to be right down. And if we do, rather than perpetuating the curse that says the husband rules over his wife and she just tries to grasp for control, rather than perpetuating that, we will begin to undo the curse. We will live counterculturally. And our actions, our choice of loving one another will be an act of worship to our God. That's huge. I would humbly posit to you that submission is not something you demand. Rather, it's something you do. I'm going to repeat that. 
Submission is not something you demand. It's something you do. Husbands, if you want to be the head of your household, then step up and serve your wife. Serve your children. Look for ways to love her. Look for ways to speak words of life into your children's heart rather than tearing them down. Look for ways to to seek out her perspectives, their perspectives. Make it your goal to identify and care for the needs of your spouse rather than just thinking about yourself and getting your own way. Wives. Do not submit to your husband because he is worthy. Submit to your husband because Christ, your Lord, is worthy. And look for ways to be the partner to your husband that God created you to be. Look for ways to build him up because the world is going to tear him down. Look for ways to take weight off of his shoulders because our tendency as men is to carry it all and try to protect those we love by shouldering it all. Look for ways to move towards him. Look for ways to care for his needs. Often, self-sacrificially. And if we do, not only will we worship God through our relationships, Not only will we shine in the darkness as a a living example of the gospel at work, we will actually stand against the curse. And if on some point you think otherwise, I I ask you to simply go back to Scripture and let God tell you. But may we love one another and may we choose to serve one another now i'm going to pause i know i've gone pretty long but but i want to take a moment i don't want you to simply hear this from my lips i'm 40 i've been married 14 years right what do i know i want to invite a couple who's been married longer than i've been on this planet to come forward and share how they have worked through this because they're both very strong individuals and this has not come easy so byron and diane would you please come on up here for a minute I can't think of anybody that I respect more in the way that they love one another. And and they don't do it perfectly, thankfully, because there's hope for the rest of us, right? But I've said a lot. Um, How has this played out in your own marriage after over 40 or 53 years? Byron? Wow. First of all, we realize we found our identity in Christ, more importantly. We realize that we're sons and daughters of Christ. And we were created for servancy. That, uh, and our marriage has gone through brokenness mm-hmm. and resurrected. But I think it's the working together, realizing that she respects me more than anything else. That uh, that's why I love her so much. You know, mm. is, now, yeah. do you love her just because she respects you, or do you choose to love her before she respects you? She's a good-looking babe when I first married. I, she's a good-looking babe now. You want to give you a straight answer? You want to take that back? <laughs> but uh, I think we've grown together, and we're friends more importantly. 
to love one another, and that love is growing more and more each day mm-hmm. that's uh, through our marriage. And uh, yeah. But being friends, mm-hmm. and like I say, out of the respect that she's shown me, that's why I love her, like Christ loved the church, but she has shown her respect, and she's been the, she was the strong helper that God provided me with, mm-hmm. so, more importantly. So. Yeah. Yeah. Diane? Okay. <laughs> you don't have any thoughts, right? <laughs> Everything you said, you know, through the message is just something that we will testify to is that God is good and that he can restore brokenness. And he's done that in our marriage. And through that, he's taught Byron and I both how to love each other the way that we were intended to love each other, not the way that we were at the beginning, you know. And so that's just what we encourage, you know, everyone to understand is that, like Eric says, out of um, our worship to God, and for me, I fell in love with the Lord. I literally fell in love. And Byron knows this, that, that, that Jesus is my Lord. And he gets the blessings of mm-hmm. that. Okay. So as I remember that in every situation that we go through, all the trials that we still go through, is that um, I want to please the Lord. Because mm-hmm. that love is so great and so good. And, and like I said, Byron gets all the benefits of that love. So, yeah, but everything, everything in Ephesians is like, oh, it's mm-hmm. right there. It's right to the, the Lewises. They remember us in those early years, right? <laughs> so God has done a wonderful work, and um, his word is true. And we, yeah, we are a, test, a testimony to that, right, Nancy? Yeah, yeah, she knows. So, you know, yeah, so through prayers and also for both of us learning how to truly love each other and submit to each other in a healthy way, in a right way, you know. We've ha- we've grown. God's grown us up in him, you know. And we're just so blessed to be able to be here right now, almost 54 years married. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of growing. That's a lot of trials, you know. And so, yeah, so we just, um, we're thankful that we have that, you know. And thank you for yeah, absolutely. One of one of the things I know you didn't want to do it, and I really am grateful that you chose to place our interests ahead of your own and be willing to do that. Um, I want you to know that one of the things I love most about our church is that we are a church of generations, and there are some of us who are pretty early in this uh, season. Of, of learning how to be spouses. There are some of you who, who do not yet have that spouse and may never have that spouse. And yet this heart of submitting our interests to the interests of another speaks to all of us. We'll explore some other venues of that next week. But um, there is some beautiful pictures of redemption within our church these two are just one of them. I can tell you, because I know many of your marriages, that God can overcome infidelity. God can overcome selfishness. God can overcome short-sighted decisions. God can overcome bankruptcy. God can overcome the pain that comes with being broken people, living with other pe- broken people in a broken world. And I would just ask you to uh, to pray over us as we um, go into a time of worship. Would you just Diane, would you, would you pray over our church? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we, we are so grateful and thankful that your word is true. It's something that we can stand on and it bears the fruit that we all desire. 
So, Father, I pray right now for our beautiful community here, our family, that you would be with each one of them as they work through their their trials and their learning how to love one another better. Lord, I pray that their hearts and their minds would be open to truly not only hearing your Holy Spirit speak to them, but then responding, Lord, so that they really will experience the fruit that comes. Help us all to be people of action, people that will take your word and, and apply it so that we truly can be the light to the world. Um, thank you for your your blessings to Byron and I because we do know that we don't deserve them, Lord, but you love us so much. And for this moment right now, just to be an encouragement that you are a God who redeems. Mm-hmm. You redeem all broken things if we give them to you, Lord, and if we believe and if we expect to see the fruit. So in your son's precious name and in the blood that he shed so that we would all be free from the things that keep us from the joy and the happiness that we desire and that you want for us, we ask for these things. Amen. 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 Let's worship our God together.